Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Dennis McShane. Dennis McShane is a former Europe Minister of the United Kingdom. Dennis, your latest book, Brexiternity, has just come out, and I'd like to ask you, on the back of that, the, all the kind of noise and the, and the heat and the, and the sabre-rattling which is happening, certainly in London and, and to a lesser extent in Brussels, is that not going to be the, the, new, the new reality in terms of UK-EU relations, or is this a kind of temporary blip? I think it's all going to take a lot longer than people imagine. Boris Johnson, rightly from his point of view, says leaving the treaty... It has got Brexit done. Well, frankly, that is for the birds. I mean, Theresa May could have left the treaty in 2017 if she'd wanted to. What matters is what is the new final or semi-final relationship? Can firms export freely to Europe? Can people retire and live in Europe? And 101 regulations that will have to be discussed and debated. I, I've spent 15 years working in Geneva. I still regularly see Swiss politicians and they like to point out that they voted not to join the European Economic Area in 1992, started negotiating a new relationship with the EU in 1993 and blow me down 27 years later, they still haven't finished. (laughs) Well, as you know, the negotiating mandate has just been approved by the U27 in Brussels and next Monday, 2nd of March, the formal negotiations start. Do you you predict a a rocky ride or will things relatively uh, quickly smooth down when, when kind of common sense breaks out on both sides, in effect? It depends very much on Boris Johnson. I can't predict how he's going to behave, and it's all entirely in his gift. I was with a group of Conservative MPs earlier uh, on a a parliamentary ski event. I still ski quite fast, so I even won a little cup, and that's probably to do with old age and skiing ability against the Swiss. And what struck me was that they really were from all sorts of different factions, but... The common thing they have is they're so happy with their 80-seat majority. Don't forget the Conservative Party uh, has not had a serious majority since the days of Margaret Thatcher. 2010, David Cameron became Prime Minister, but in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, who the Conservatives Mm. hate, in my experience, more than they dislike Labour. David Cameron re-elected 2015, but... He throws it all away with his Brexit plebiscite and then it's sheer agony under Theresa May. And now, last December, the Tories have got their 80-seat majority. They are like pigs rolling in in, in clover. Uh, They are so, so happy and content. And I think that gives Boris Johnson an enormously strong free hand. Almost anything he decides to sell to the Conservative Party, they will buy from him. So... What on earth is in his head on yeah. what the relationship with the rest of Europe should be? Well, in the run-up to the referendum in 2016, you were one of the very, very few people in the UK, certainly, to predict a, a negative outcome, a, a leave vote. Uh, you were, I know you hated being seen as a Cassandra, but you pr- turned out to be a very um, a very good Cassandra in this, in this context. Fast forward four years, are you therefore, since you have this kind of crystal ball gazing ability, are you surprised by the, or not, by the, the tenor of the debate and this majority you're talking about? 
for you it's normal that it's being used to push a rather hard, even not a zero deal Brexit, as opposed to going for a, a so-called softer Brexit? Yes, when a new government's elected with a big majority after years of not being really in power, then the first few months it's very exciting. They want to sort of push forward their ideas. They want to say we're going to do this and we're in charge and we know what should be done. And Boris Johnson has to say that to keep reassuring the activists who voted him, voted him in as leader, to keep assuring all the Conservative MPs who were elected, not just last December, but in 2017 or 2015 or even 2010, on an anti-European ticket, that he is their man. But also, the one thing you say about Mr Johnson is, is, is his inconstancy. He is utterly unfaithful to ideas, to colleagues, to party. We all know about women, we don't have to go there. This is a man who's very entertaining, uh, very clever, great communicator in his own way, but he just has never believed in anything other than Boris Johnson. And so he's got to make a big judgment. Does the, is the Conservative Party now the party almost of a revolutionary change in Britain, as if he was a, a sort of right-wing Trotskyist? Or is it the party that it's been for the last 300 years of evolutionary change, of conserving what's important and vital? And above all, is it a party that takes on British capitalism, the economic interests of the country, which the Conservatives for 300 years have been the party to uphold? Right. I am not sure at all, and let's wait, we have to wait six months, nine months. He really is going to go for a revolutionary rupture. Well, as you know, in the past, that one reason, even under Theresa May, even David Cameron, never mind Boris Johnson, one reason why the, the Tory leadership of the, of the moment has been so anti-European, in effect, let's, let's call a spade a spade, is because there's been felt pressure from the UKIP, then the Brexit Party, from the European Reform Group in the, in the Parliament. Uh, and But now the, the Brexit Party seems to have kind of retired from the scene up to a point. Uh, there's this donkey majority you're talking about. Um, we'll see how influential the European Reform Group will be going forward. Um, uh, and therefore, you'd think that Boris Johnson has more, uh, has less need to feel pressurised by these the, 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 the extreme right-wing fringes, anti-European fringes of the Tory party. I think he's got a free hand. You've got the old generation, the knights in unshining armour, like Sir John Redwood and Sir William Cash and Sir Bernard Jenkin and David Davies isn't quite a Sir Sir Ian yet. Duncan Smith. Sir Ian Duncan <laughs> Smith. But they're all men now in their 70s, and in the closing stages of their political life. I'm fascinated by the decision of Steve Baker, who is a serious political operative. That He was the Tory MP who was secretary or chairman of the European Research Group. He held it all together. Right. He was he's not an intellectual in any sense, but he's a brilliant organiser. He's very cunning, and he pulled them all together and destroyed Theresa May and then put in their man, Boris Johnson. They haven't got an alternative to Boris Johnson. So why has Steve Baker stood down as chairman well, I, of the European Research Group? He announces that Brexit has happened. Right. Leaving the European Union Treaty is Brexit. I think this suits Mr Johnson. If that is what the country and Tory MPs believe, Brexit has been done. Then the rest of it is what General de Gaulle used to refer to as l'entendance, which means logistics. You know, right. He does the big strategy, he fights the great battles, and then there's somebody else who handles you know, the food arriving and the ammunition arrival. And technical stuff, and I think it may actually suit Mr Johnson for all this to get 
bogged down in boring technical stuff. There will be no interest. It won't make headlines any longer. And Steve Baker's uh, retired. Uh, and my impression is that some of the oomph and steam that has been driving Brexit, driving anti-Europeanism in politics has gone. You're quite right. Brexit party's gone. UKIP's gone. Nigel Farage doesn't have an elected position for the first time in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and people are fed up, I think, with hearing him rant and rave. Uh, so he sails off into the sunset, uh, maybe goes to work for Donald Trump, who knows. And th there isn't any longer that energising push right. on the right in Britain uh, that, that focuses just on getting out of Europe. Well, well let's switch our focus then to, to the Labour Party. Um, Dennis, we're still, as this has been recorded, at least five or six weeks away from the final result of the Labour leadership election result. Um, it's been going on forever, this campaign, as you know, since uh, since the general election in December. Um, as we speak, none of us know, of course, who's going to be the, the winner, although Keir Starmer is clearly, according to, according to opinion polls, in, in the lead. What do you think the next four years, five years of this current parliament, um, the Labour Party will look like once it's got a new leader. Will it start having any kind of interest uh, on, on the Europe debate uh, or, or they, they'll move toward the domestic agenda? I fear, because it's a mistake, because you just cannot isolate yourself from Europe. As, as I said earlier, I've just been in Switzerland. I go there and I talk to political friends of all parties there and Europe's a big story there as well you just can't disconnect from Europe you can't tow Britain off the European mainland and anchor it next door to Florida or Tasmania <laughs> we are a European island nation with Europe's been part of what we do and who we are for, for hundreds of years so uh, but I think the Labour Party response uh, almost irrespective of whoever becomes a leader, will just be that of the three wise monkeys, to see no Europe, hear no Europe, say no Europe. They see it as toxic, they see it uh, Jeremy Corbyn's disastrous fence-sitting, and the way the shadow cabinet offer no leadership at all mm. uh, on the European issue after the referendum of 2016, uh, that they'll just probably want to keep a long, long distance from Europe and focus on bread and butter issues, austerity, uh, all the problems of poverty and you know, core Labour Party issues. It'll be a very unadventurous and I think rather unambitious uh, Labour Party in terms of international policy, including European policy. Yeah, well, we'll come to maybe Europe in, in a second, Dennis, but before we do so, um, I, can, I can understand that for the next period, especially with this huge majority of, of the Tory party, there's not going to be much uh, opportunity for the opposition to make any kind of uh, headway on, on the Europe debate. But if you're a, uh, an ordinary person in, in, uh, in, in the UK and a Remain and pro-European uh, and you want to be in, still involved politically, even though the, the Brexit result is now clear, uh, what, what do you do? Do you still carry on trying to support a political party or do you just wait for the next general election uh, and hope that there's a party out there which re reasonably reflects your pro-European pro views? I've been since the uh, general election to huge meetings in the north, in Leeds, in London, bringing in hundreds and hundreds of, of people who represent you know, the, the narrow majority. It is narrow, except that, but Boris Johnson got 44% of voters to back his Brexit 
um, proposals in the election in December, 51-52% voted for parties that were opposed to Brexit or wanted a new referendum, Labour, Lib Dems, the SNP. And let's not forget, talking about Labour, that if Labour can't get back into Scotland, it has no chance ever again of forming a government. So the Scottish question is absolutely vital, and I expect it will become very important, uh, or more important, as we approach the elections to the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood in Edinburgh in, in next, next spring, 2021. But I'm just saying to, to everybody, keep organising, keep, keep the faith. There are so many small businesses who could be seriously messed up. If you heard, for example, um, Net Waters, the boss of the uh, chairperson or president of the National Farmers Union, yeah. just going absolutely full on that the idea of importing Donald Trump's chlorinated chicken, hormone-modified beef, mm -hmm. destroying all food standards that we have created in this country, not necessarily through the EU, but through yeah. British values of good husbandry and farmers being responsible and growing animals for food in a, in a healthy way, an absolute contradiction to what happens in the United States. And she finishes by saying that anybody who advances this policy is either immoral or is insane. Well, I'm sorry. We, this is this is this is the president of the NFU. That's never right. been a Labour outfit or a left-wing outfit or pro-European outfit. Yeah, they're the first people, like the European CEO of Nissan, saying that if Nissan loses its single market access to sell nearly two-thirds of what it produces in Nissan to the European market without tariffs, without barriers, then there's no point in continuing to produce Nissans in, in Sunderland. Oh. And bit by bit, I just hope people, trade unions in particular, Labour MPs, Labour councillors, uh, speaking as a Labour guy, will start to produce reports, analyses mm. that just say, hang on, maybe we have to be outside the treaty for a while, but can we not be a bit more like Norway or a bit more like Switzerland? Right. We really have to pretend that we have to be more like Florida or, or uh, um, Queensland. Before we move to uh, the continental Europe part of this chat, Dennis, uh, one last question on, on the UK politics. Um, for a brief moment in time, it seemed there was going to be an uh, opening to a, a, a new party, uh, a brand new party, uh, not just the Lib Dems, but a brand new party. The, obviously, the experience of the, the, I forget the name, the Independence Group, whatever it was called, that had so many names, um, Change UK, was not particularly uh, imp impressive. But has that ship now sailed? There's no prospect in the short to medium term, even long term, for any kind of brand new political formation being created in the centre of British politics? It's like asking for a new party in America uh, in place of the Democrats or the Republicans that can occupy the center, uh, sensible ground. Our electoral system based on first-past-the-post renders that all but impossible. There was a surge in the 1980s, the Social Democratic Party then forging, merging with the Liberals to make the Liberal Democratic Party. But then you had... Uh, very, very sharp polarisation. Conservative Party under Mrs Thatcher being really right-wing and the Labour Party uh, to begin with under Michael Foote and the early Neil Kinnock with uh, the great strikes by uh, Arthur Scarborough at Wapping uh, was seen to be just in the pocket of trade unions. Tony Blair got rid of all that mm. uh, and uh, I don't think um, 
there's any appetite. I really regret the number of friends of mine in both parties, Labour and uh, Conservative, who gave up their party membership uh, either to form the independent group to begin with and then to sort of segue into being Lib Dem candidates. I mean, the Liberal Democrats, a lot of great friends, huge contribution in my lifetime to British politics. But when Nick Clegg went into that coalition with David Cameron, he mm. just sold the shop right. and embraced austerity, triple student fees. It will take a long time and a lot of very hard work the Lib Dems to come back. So my argument will be, my side of politics work within the Labour Party, Conservative side of politics work, not now, people don't want to put their head above the parapet, but just say, well, maybe we can redefine a relationship with Europe. You know, we will right. live with the fact that we're no longer EU treaty members, but that doesn't mean the full-on rupture uh, that the anti-Europeans have been arguing for for really all of this century. Right. Well, in this last part of the chat, Dennis, let's talk about uh, the centre-left in Europe. I know particularly when you were Europe Minister under Tony Blair, and you were a very long-serving Europe Minister, one of almost a world record, two and a half years, I think I'm right in saying. You know much better than I do. The the, the, the electoral success of the centre-left, uh, traditionally defined in Europe, is not particularly uh, impressive. So where do you see the current state of the, the, the centre-left or the progressive left, whatever you want to call it, in Europe? I would make three points. Number one, the classic 20th century formations of the centre-left and the centre-right. The Christian Democrats and the old Liberal parties have also suffered. They served their purpose 1945 to maybe around the beginning of this century. But politics have moved on. People have got now a new menu they want for politics. Right. And a lot of different parties are popping up. Some of the populist right, like the AFD in Germany, or yeah. Marine Le Pen in France, or Matteo Salvini in the Liga in Italy, but also some on the progressive side of politics are actually doing quite well. The Greens are doing very well. Mm, yeah. The Swiss People's Party, a classic right-wing Swiss nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-European party, it, it vote went down in the elections okay. in December. We've seen in Ireland the dominance of the two centre-right parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, challenged by mm. Sinn Féin, appealing to young people. We've seen in uh, Spain the rise of Podemos, and Greece, of course, Syriza. Yeah. And so politics is much more about identity politics, right. and it's much more easy under proportional representation to just draw up your offer and see who you can uh, attract. But we've had a lot of, uh, I think, uh, ill thought out proposal analyses from some British commentators, usually monolingual guys who <laughs> don't really understand European politics. Oh, oh, look at Salvini, look at Steve Bannon coming in, look at Gerd Wilders, look mm. at Marie Le Pen. It's all going to the right, right, right. It, it, some of it is, but some of it's going to the progressive left, it's going to the even more left, it's going to the Greens, it's going to identity politics. Where do you fit in, for example, the Scottish Nationalist Party? I yeah, mean, yeah. it's it's an identity party, which I think would claim to be rather more centre-left than centre-right, but it's utterly dominant in Scotland. So in other words, to finish off, so progressive politics are still in a relatively healthy state, but they don't normally necessarily come from traditional centre-left socialist parties. Exactly. It's, it's healthy, but very confused very disparate, often depending on you know, 
on personalities, which right. on the whole politics shouldn't. Uh, you must have strong personalities, clear personalities to, to be your spokesperson and to lead, but you also should have a wide base of organisation. If it's just a one-man show, then real problems arise. But no, I don't see Europe... Uh, turning its back on a lot of what I would consider to be uh, progressive uh, left, centre-left values, even if I think the chances of the giant 20th century formation, social democracy, yeah. the Labour Party, the Socialist Party in France or in Spain, the Christian Democratic parties and the Liberal parties coming back to occupy as much political space as they did, uh, yeah, probably up to about... Uh, yeah, the beginning of the beginning of uh, uh, this century, twenty the year two thousand, I think twelve out of the fifteen then EU governments member states, twelve out of the fifteen were held by centre left, social democratic, Labour, socialist parties. All those parties were in coalition. Right, it's an extraordinary historical moment. It was Gerhard Schröder, yeah, Dylan Jospin, yeah, Tony yeah. Blair, Massimo de Labour, Cossimitis, others I could mention. Uh, Goran Persson in Sweden, and I remember saying to Tony all the time, "You must seize this moment and mm. build a more enduring alliance." But Tony Blair's view was, well, yes, as long as it's my third wave vision. Version, right, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of positive aspects to that, but it would never fly in uh, in uh, France, particularly. Right. It wouldn't really fly in Sweden. Uh, and we somehow didn't know how to take that political moment and build an enduring network of sensible, progressive politics in charge of running uh, the vast majority of EU member states. Okay, well we have to leave it there. Dennis McShane, thank you very much for your time. Great pleasure, thank you Paul.